because of my exposure over the years to lots of tough men, ministers, colleagues, the trade union movement, the Michael O'Leary's of this world, I got comfortable being tough too. Julie O'Neill is sound, grounded and full of common sense. Julie talked to us for this Women in Leadership podcast about her stellar trailblazing career in the civil service here in Ireland and about how she rose through the ranks to become Secretary General of the Department of Transport, a government department that had never been headed up by a woman before she took the helm. She didn't start out with an ambitious career plan, but had a great attitude and good mentors along the way, including her dad early on. And I couldn't sing and I couldn't sew, even though I thought I wanted to be a teacher. So I did the junior executive officer exam to get um, a day off school. To say Julie has retired would be wrong. She has simply progressed to the next phase of her career. And she began by telling me about her new consultancy, where she continues to put her wealth of experience and common sense to good use, in particular in her position on the board of Ryanair and also on the board of Permanent TSB. Join the Dots is my very small consultancy business. I'm essentially self-employed. I had worked as a career public servant for 37 years and when I left the public service at at the end of that time and I had been seven years as Secretary General of the Department of Transport, I had to go through what many women have to go through at some point in their career, which was a complete process of reinvention. And uh, for me, it was a bit like jumping off the edge of a cliff because I'd been part of a very structured career path for all of that time. I hadn't realised the extent to which... Uh, that world of work was my village, my community, my network of friends, my network of power and influence. So it was, where did I start again? And um, I decided, like many people um, do, to set myself up as an independent management consultant, partly because I wanted to reconnect with the set of skills that had got me to a leadership role in organisations in the first place and that I would have used a good bit earlier in my career, but had maybe become a little bit rusted over because the more senior you become um, in a role like mine, where you effectively reach management director status, uh, the more you can get very absorbed in governance, governance, management, those aspects of the job, and you lose touch with maybe the strategic creative ability that got you there in the first place. So Join the Dots was for me about uh, making the connections between the world of the private sector, the world of the public sector and the world of um, the voluntary non-for-profit sector and identifying where I felt I could add value by bringing some of the skills that I'd learned in one sector to another and also by the same token learning from working within those sectors. Now you've had a a glittering career as you say and you're now... um on the board of both TSB and Ryanair. But yeah. Tell us a little bit about your early career. You know, what age were you when you started in the civil service and how did your career progress there? Okay. Well, I, I was very much, I suppose, a, a child of my generation, which wasn't quite the 60s. I made it into the 70s before I left school. But I left school in 1972, 16 years of age. Um, my leaving search in Wexford uh, with three younger brothers, um, Uh, and probably an expectation that I'd take on some kind of a clerical or other job uh, and and would leave work when I got married because at that stage the marriage bar was still in place and 
I went to the Loretta in Wexford, um, which was a convent school, where in fairness, they were quite good at encouraging developing young women, but it was still a world where women couldn't do honours, girls couldn't do honours maths, for instance, where our choice of science subjects were quite limited, um, and where the kind of teaching, or the kind of opportunities that we aspired to were teaching, banking, the civil service, domestic science. And I couldn't sing and I couldn't sew, even though I thought I wanted to be a teacher. So I did the junior executive officer exam to get um, a day off school and various other civil service exams. I ended up with three job offers in civil service, one which was junior ex in Dublin. My parents wanted me to take clerical officer in the county library because I'd be on my own doorstep and I wouldn't have accommodation costs or the like. But I couldn't resist the the urge at 16 years of age to escape, to go and live and work in Dublin fully intending to leave uh, the civil service within 12 months and go to university and do something. Um, But one thing left to another, probably came under a bit of pressure from my parents now that I had a good job to keep it, and I stayed in in the civil service. Um, And I would say I did not start out as ambitious. Now, there was probably always a bit of a streak of ambition in me. I'll come back to that maybe later, but... I was like everybody else. I was out for a good time. I was swanning into the dandelion market on a Saturday morning. I was going to the Universal for my Chinese um, uh, lunch on a Saturday. Uh, But I decided I would do a BCom at night and um, married very, very young. Married at uh, 21, 22, became pregnant on my honeymoon. But while I was on my honeymoon, before I knew I was pregnant, I had a phone call from my then boss to say that there was a a promotion competition going for a post of um, training officer in what was then called the Civil Service Training Centre. And my first reaction was, sure, I couldn't do that. I couldn't stand in front of a class of people all day. And he said, do you not want to be a teacher? Of course, you can stand in front of a class of people. And he was a really brilliant example of mentoring and support and encouragement and of pushing me beyond my comfort zone. So I applied for the job and I actually did the interview on the day that I discovered I was pregnant with my daughter, which was a very short time later. Um, but I took the job and I became one of the very first women to work in the civil service um, after the marriage bar had gone and, and to go back to work straight away. And after that, um, I, I, I suppose I had a stark choice. It was, it was before the time of career breaks or job sharing or any of those options. So either you got out and you became a stay-at-home mum, or you stayed on, which in my case meant going back to work the day Claire was six weeks old. And because of mortgage and other commitments, I stayed on and um, had my second child a couple of years later and came back to work immediately after Shane was born as well. But I'm not sure when the bug bit. It may have been that as a management trainer, I was developing training programs for women in management, the first ever in the civil service. I was training people more senior and experienced to me um, uh, in management and leadership skills. And after that, every opportunity I got was a promotion by competition. So I got to a master's degree in policy analysis, I uh, was assigned to the Department of Social Welfare. I ended up as head of the office of the Thornishta when Dick Spring was Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, from that, I was assigned to the Department of Tourism. 
from there I became Secretary General in the Department of uh, uh, Marine and Natural Resources and then a change of government resulted in me in me being appointed overnight as Secretary General to the Department of Transport. So I had a kind of a, a really fascinating career trajectory through eight government departments and where along the way I was a management training officer, a policy analyst, a press and information officer, in charge of volunteering community activity, in charge of tourism, uh, heading up the Deputy Prime Minister's office and ultimately Secretary General in Transport. And frankly, you don't get that variety of career um, and skill sets outside the public service. I, I really do feel I was hugely privileged to have the opportunities I got. I was interviewing Danuta Gray and she said something similar, you know, that if you're prepared to roll with it and take opportunities as they arise, that you learn as you go and you just have room to grow. Yeah, I, 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 I'm a huge believer in that. I mean, in some ways I would say looking back on my career, I was lucky, but I also do believe you make your luck and you take your luck. And in my case, I think it was a combination of a couple of things. It was a willingness to have a go when I wasn't always entirely sure that I was ready for it. And that was usually because somebody, most often a man who was my boss at the time, encouraged me to step a little bit outside my comfort zone. And then having got the taste for it and realising that even though I might be really scared at the beginning, that I could grow into a job, I got braver about being willing to, 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 to stick my neck out. So, for instance, at that time, promotion... It was no longer just on waiting for your turn, but you still tended to have a long queue ahead of you in your own department. So when the job came up in the office of the Deputy Prime Minister, Dick Springs' office, I said, I'll have a go with that because there won't be a natural incumbent. And sure enough, I got it. But that led in turn to me being moved sideways at various stages into places I never expected to be. Um, and each time I got the chance, I took it. And I had... I had become Secretary General in the Department of Marine, which was a an interesting department, but a bit of a mixed bag of marine and natural resources and forestry and fishery. And the government changed at the time. This was 2001. And um, I got a phone call, 2002, got a phone call to say, you're being made head Secretary General of the Department of Transport, which is a newly formed department. Um, which was drawing together the transport functions from roads from the Department of Environment, uh, aviation and public transport from the Department of Public Enterprise and Marine from my own department, and we're putting you in charge of it. And my first reaction was, I never applied for this. I don't know my way around the transport sector. And again, it was an interesting example. Charlie McCreevy, who was Minister for Finance at the time, and, and who had been my minister in the Department of Social Welfare, where we had sparred like no man's business, um, rang me up and he said, I hear you're balking at taking this on. He said, you can have a soft job. You can have the kind of soft job, I won't quote him directly on this, but you can have the kind of soft job that women usually end up with in one of the social departments. Or you can be one of the few women ever to lead a serious economic department. Do you want it or do you not? And I said, I'll take it. And... I loved that job. I really thrived in it. So, you know, sometimes you've got to be brave enough to take on things that really scare you. Do you have to be brave enough to take, you know, kind of ballsy to take on a minister like that? Do you think he, you earned his respect from all those little... Oh, I did, absolutely. He used to say, um, at, at the time at the time he came into the department, 
of social welfare. I had been, until shortly before then, press and information officer, and I'd been responsible for revamping the information service of the department. And by then, I also had charge of all the voluntary and community activity, including support for community groups and um, community development. And I remember him saying to me at one stage, Anarchy, you're funding, Julie. Anarchy. He used to call me my um, his, his social <laughs> conscience, the lefty in the department, which wasn't hard to be left to Charlie at that stage. But we did become firm friends and ironically now both find ourselves on the board of Ryanair and he will still sometimes say to me did you ever think Julie did you ever think when we were slugging it out in the department of social welfare we'd ever um, both end up on the board of you know one of Ireland's most successful um, and entrepreneurial airlines so yeah I suppose I never lacked courage uh, I you know I, I was always willing uh, not just to take a chance in terms of being brave enough to take on something that scared me, but also confronting and taking on challenging people, but not in a not in a nasty way, just in a standing up to people and standing up for what I believed in and having the rows. And uh, I was on radio the other day uh, talking about dealing with them. Um, awkward people that you might encounter in your career, awkward people in the office, you know, the bullies, the office psychopaths, the really challenging people. And I actually love working around highly contentious people that you can have a good argument with because it's they're very often the life force of your organisation. And that would have been true of my minister sometimes and it would have been true of colleagues and others. So definitely there's an element of that. Definitely it's an element of, of taking that on. But... But it was also about um, grabbing opportunities that came my way with both hands. And if those opportunities led unexpectedly to you going in a completely different direction, grabbing those ones too. That um, the, the fact that you went to a, a transport, which is automatically associated with men. Yeah, did engineers, you... <laughs> boys with toys, lots of them. What particular challenges did you meet there? Were, were there a lot of men in that department yeah, as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, a couple of things about that. It, it was my first serious economic ministry, even though I had worked as the Assistant Secretary responsible for tourism before that, and as I say, in marine and natural resources. And in the case of tourism, even though it's a very important part of the economy, it's a sector where obviously there are a lot of women active in local, and it's very community-driven, grounded in local communities. Um, when I went into the Department of Transport, uh, the first thing I had to do was to pull together my management team. I was working to Seamus Brennan, who sadly died subsequently um, as minister. He and I had never met before. Um, I had some interesting junior ministers pass through the department uh, while I was there. I had six or seven direct reports, all of them were men, three of them were called John, which, you know, was in itself interesting. They say men with the name John are more likely to, uh, to, to be successful. Uh, they all came from different perspectives. They were all very able people, but they were used to working very much in a silo way. And what I was trying to do was pull together a coherent, integrated Department of Transport. I had 34 um, agencies attached to that department. It included Aer Lingus, all the state airports, the regional airports, all the ports, um, all the commercial ports. Uh, it included um, CIE, so I had Dublin Bus, Irish Rail, um, and Bus Aaron. 
It included all the state safety agencies, the National Roads Authority, the Irish Aviation Authority. So I had infrastructure, I had services and safety right across uh, the gamut of everything to do with transport. And a very high proportion of engineers who by definition are nearly all largely uh, male. Um, Great people, but for me, there was a big challenge about building a coherent, focused approach that integrated thinking um, uh, across those sectors uh, and about driving change through and again. Um, another John, uh, John Lynch, who at that stage was uh, was chairman of CIE, used to say, you know, sometimes you need the broads out when it comes to transport because they'll tell you, because I'd be saying things like, you know, you're, 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 you're doing certain things, you're, you're going to shut down uh, the dart on a, a Stephen's day to do repairs has not occurred to you that that's the day that an awful lot of women want to go to the sales you know <laughs> and uh, you know so you had a funny amusing anecdotes like that but for me I, I think one of the big learnings out of that f- for me is that I would have described my leadership style up to then as being highly collaborative and it still is instinctively I'm collaborative by nature and when I tried to build a collaborative approach among these very diverse men, um, one of the things that I had to deal with was building up emotional intelligence within the organisation. And I remember one of them saying to me at one stage, I remember saying to him after a meeting, you were clearly very upset. And he said, how did you know that? Who told you that? <laughs> and I said, because it was written all over your face. And he, he was shocked at this, but by, it became a kind of almost a joke between us, a good humour joke that they began to get used to me empathising, understanding, demonstrating emotional intelligence, and guess what? They showed capacity to learn it. But by the same token, I was struck by the fact that these men I worked with could have sometimes extremely robust exchanges, really argue to the point that it could become a shouting match from time to time uh, about issues, but they could still go off and have a pint together in the evening or watch a match together, whereas... As a woman, I was more inclined to harbour things like that and feel the little bit, she said, you know, that, that kind of thing. So I would say I, I would like to feel that they learned a lot from working with me. But by the same token, I learned a lot about the best performing organisations being ones that are highly contentious. And it's a quote I picked up somewhere in my travels, but highly contentious organisations where no subject is undiscussable. Because if everything is discussable, you get your best thinking. Whereas if you just go for collaboration, sometimes you, you, you gloss over the cracks. So that would have been one of the issues. But, you know, I can remember times in those jobs where I faced really, really difficult trade union meetings where, you know, you came up against all the the tough, hard slog uh, of, of people that had been used to rolling their sleeves up in smoke-filled rooms until the early hours of the morning and didn't take any prisoners when it came to taking you on. Do you think you're unusual, though? I mean, most women that I know probably would find it very difficult to get into that argumentative phase. Is it something you just get used to? Or can you steal yeah, yourself I, I, to I mean, it? I have a... One of my strong views is that the best-performing organisations do have a degree of gender balance and indeed other kind of balances within them but this is the diversity argument which which I know you'll probably want to touch on and and one of the issues about that is that I mean I have occasionally worked with all women groups I as a consultant I facilitated all women groups 
I've obviously often worked with all male groups now by definition in those circumstances I might be the only woman in the room and that in itself probably changes the dynamic but I find that there's learning both ways if you've got a bit of a better mixer um, around the table and I took a particular view I in the early part of my career I would have worked for some women that were frankly very difficult to work with and they were women who had made it to senior levels of the civil service by definition in that era to get to a senior level in the civil service as a woman you would have had to have stayed on which meant you never married which maybe resulted in some cases and this is not a generalization in them being less rounded than those of us like myself who had to cope with going home to the young kids and the hungry husband and all the rest of it that went in that. And so they tended to be maybe more singularly focused in careers. They also, in all fairness to them, in order to succeed in that very male environment, sometimes had to outmale the males, outmacho the men. And I took a particular view, which was that people were going to have to deal with me as I am. And one of the nicest compliments I got uh, was from one of the men who worked for me, who made the going away speech for me when I left the civil service. And he said, at the end of the day, working with Julie, we knew she was human. We knew if we pricked her, she'd bleed. We knew at times, because while I was there in that job, my dad died, for instance, while I was still working there and had other family traumas to contend with. So they saw the human side of me. And I didn't feel a need to hide that. And I think it takes a degree of emotional intelligence and maturity and comfort within your own skin that comes with the experience to be able to do that. And I decided early on, like I I had one particular mortifying experience where I dissolved into tears actually of anger because some very senior people in the trade union movement attacked one of my colleagues ironically I wouldn't have cried if they'd attacked me but I got so and you know with women sometimes emotion instead of spilling over to anger spills over into tears and of course it appeared in the Sunday paper the following (laughs) Sunday you know basically we made the secretary general of the department cry and at the time I thought I'd die in mortification but you know what I didn't I survived that now I didn't make a habit of going around and bursting into tears (laughs) on the job but if it did it it wasn't the end of the world so I kind of decided early on I'm neither going to be the ultra-macho woman that tries to be more macho than the men, nor am I going to be the softy, blubbery, giddy, you know, light, you know, and I remember somebody saying, you know, you could be too giggly if you're not careful, and that's, you know, yeah, and so I just found my own space um, in between that, but that also meant somewhere along the way, because of my exposure over the years to lots of tough men, ministers, colleagues, the trade union movement, the Michael O'Leary's of this world, I got comfortable being tough too. But without ever, I hope, losing touch with my own femininity or my sense of myself as a woman. Uh, And that a huge, for me, it's all about becoming comfortable in your own skin. And that does come with maturity and experience. 
Now, tell me, you've given a lot of talks to women about women in leadership, and the quote from Hillary Clinton is that women are the largest untapped resource of talent in the world, and it's past time for women to take their rightful place side by side with men in the rooms where the fates of peoples, where their children and grandchildren's fates are decided. Do you agree with Hillary Clinton? I do. I, I mean, I find it very funny because I have my set of slides that I've used and developed over the years, and one of the ones I have is the women are... Uh, one of the most untapped sources of leadership talent. Um, yes, I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's true at the level that, um, forget for a moment about the issue of women losing out. Society loses out, businesses lose out, um, economies lose out um, if women aren't part of the leadership function. And. I, I spend more time in the private sector now than I do in the public sector and one of the very interesting learnings for me when I left the public sector was the public sector is actually more gender balanced and more accommodating of women than I had realised when I was in it and the private sector is potentially less so um, in certain types of organisations and that's partly to do with the fact that the public sector thanks to the European Union took a lead in developing family-friendly policies, took a lead in making an effort at least at having gender quotas for women on state boards, took a lead at trying to increase the proportion of women in, in management and, and decision-making and, and leadership roles. And I was very much party to a number of those strategies over the years in terms of training and development and, and um, recruitment strategies. The private sector wasn't subject to those rigours and when I first go into a boardroom or a senior management team that's quite male-dominated, um, I still get a bit thrown when, and I'm, this is a, a, a group, a board I was part of a number of years ago, not one, either of the ones I'm, I'm on now, where there's literally almost an expectation that I'll make the tea. Or when somebody says to me, as somebody did recently, I, I see you work with Michael O'Leary, are you his secretary? You know, and I mean, it, this happens. This happens all the time. Yeah. And I suppose I got so used to thinking of myself as a senior person, I forget until I get these small experiences again that that perception of women um, is still, um, is still a around. And I do see the difference that women make in a boardroom that women make around a table. And ideally, and it's not easily achieved, I like that proportion to be up close to the 40%, because one woman makes a difference, two makes a greater difference, but if you get to four out of 10, then you actually begin to change the cultural dynamic, as opposed to have the the risk of tokenism. But I, you know, I, you know. Because women dis it. disagree between themselves as well. Of course we disagree between ourselves, but I do think we bring a different perspective to the table. And it's not all soft and fuzzy perspective. It's just different. I think we see the world in a different way. Um, and as I've said, I've learned a huge amount from the different way in which men view the world, the different strategic focus they adopt. But by the same token, I think there, there are particular skills and insights we bring to the table, skills and competences that are very um, innate and that, you know, I mean, they're both socialised and, and they're, they're in our genes probably since, since, since uh, the time of the cavemen and, uh, and women, but also insights that come from our view of the world uh, uh, and, 
you know, certain capacities, like a capacity for multitasking, an ability to juggle lots of things, um, uh, an ability... I, I, I find men, and I, and I never generalise because I think I have a lot of male traits and I meet men that have a lot of feminine traits, so I don't overly generalise, but where women think very strategically and long, women can, you know, be very focused on the here and now and getting things right now with an eye for detail. And I also find women willing very often to speak out more. Um, on behalf of others or on behalf of Oh, on behalf of what they think is right. Uh, uh, to slow things down. I, I, I see a difference sometimes in the way in which women perform in a boardroom or around a management table in terms of their willingness to say, hang on a second, slow down, take it back. And I'm surprised you're even using that. Well, I'm not surprised because I've heard that from a few senior women. They say, the hang on a minute moment. The hang on a minute <laughs> when moment. When the lads yeah. are kind of dashing away with something. And, and that can be... And again, I don't want to overly generalise. Partly it's because the men are strategic and taking the long view. Partly it's because you can get sometimes a bit of groupthink around that and the, the being one of the lads. And um, a willingness to challenge constructively um, is something that I see and I think is hugely important and also that's partly coming from just a difference in perspective so not assuming that the status quo is right not backslapping one another and saying we didn't we do that well and saying well hang on a second maybe that's not the best way to go have you ever experienced though being bypassed at a board meeting or a senior management level meeting you know where they say oh that's very nice now but we'll move on to the real agenda have you ever yeah, but I mean, I, is what's that, your coping strategy? What do you advise when the bypass happens? I think you pick your battles to start with. I mean, I have had experiences. I've had experiences where I've wanted to raise an issue and I've thought about how am I going to position this? And one of the things I've discovered that can be quite effective is rather than being the one that raises it from the corner of the table at a board meeting, you try to build your alliances beforehand. So you try to talk to a number of people and say, look, I have this issue, I'm concerned about it, I'm going to raise about it. I have had amusing experiences of where I have done that bit of groundwork beforehand. I've raised the matter at the meeting. Beforehand, everybody said, you're absolutely right. They shared that concern. I've raised the issue at the meeting. Um, the others, male around the table, have shifted uncomfortably in their seats and squirmed because it's not a popular idea or point to raise. The thing has been moved swiftly on. And then they've come up to me afterwards and backslapped me and said, you did great. Now, you were, it was great that you raised that point, but I wouldn't have got support um, necessarily at the time. But I've learned to bide my time with things like that. I've, I've challenged myself. Could I have handled it better? Could I have done it differently? Um, and for me, success, which comes sweetly every now and again, is where you actually make a point. And a few people say, you know, Julie said, and I think, you know, she made a good point there. And when that begins to happen unconsciously, where the men aren't conscious that they're singling you out, but you've actually become one of the lads, but in a very constructive sense is good. But I, what I would say to women is pick your battles carefully. You don't fight every dog fight. You don't fight every small example of what you perceive, sometimes incorrectly, sometimes correctly, as sexism bypassing. You decide when something is big enough or important enough to make an issue of, and then you build your coalitions of support around it. 
And if you lose out and you really feel strongly about it, you figure out, how am I going to come back at it and fight another day? Don't fight every single small issue or you'll just wear yourself out and you actually end up irritating people and you actually have to build support for what it is you believe in along the way. You seem to have so much energy and you make light of the fact that, you know, well, had two children, did a BCom, <laughs> back and did a master's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you just roll. You, you, did you always have that sort of energy? Yeah. I, I, that's innate. And don't ask me where it came from. And, you know, sometimes at, at these workshops that I speak at or if I talk about leadership, women ask questions like, how do you maintain enthusiasm or energy? That has never been my problem. My problem has been knowing when to stop and knowing when to slow down. So, you know, my greater risk would always have been of burnout. Um, and I mean, I look back now, my, my, my son and his Chinese wife and my little grandson, who's just turned two, have just come back from China to live um, in Ireland and they're living down the road. And I should be ashamed to say it, but I've almost more time with my little grandson than I had with my kids when they were small. And I'm having all that joy all over again of, you know, realising what two, how much two-year-olds learn in a week. And to a certain extent, those early years for me were a bit of a blur. And of course I hit walls. Like, I remember, you know, my childminding arrangement. This was before you had decent crashes or things like that. So childminding was the... The woman down the road looked after your kids. I remember it falling apart at one stage completely and literally thinking on one particular day, I'm going to have to give up work tomorrow because I've nobody to mind the kids. And my own mum and dad were in Wexford. I had no friends with young kids. I had no family support structures around. My husband was working full time. So I kind of look back on some of those and wonder how I got through it. Um, I look back on some of the things. I mean, we've standard family jokes, like missing my daughter's first ballet play which she doesn't remember but she does remember that I've forgotten her her broken arm and she lives in Australia now and is about to have her first child but I I look back the one thing that consoles me is despite the fact that there were undoubtedly things that I got wrong as a parent and on time undoubtedly times I wasn't as available as I should have been to my kids I have two fabulous adult kids with whom I have a fantastic relationship um and to me, you know, that kind of makes it worthwhile. And, and there's, you know, I mean, you said before we st- turned on the recorder about the role model thing. There's no doubt my daughter and my son would see me as a role model, even though, and they're quite honest about this, they have chosen and will cho- choose to do things slightly differently in child rearing because they will have options I didn't have about career breaks or job sharing and the like. So, yeah, I always had huge energy. So would you say to women who have the guilt trip, and I think most women do... Everybody. Every everybody. woman suffers guilt. Yeah. Every woman suffers guilt. It goes with the territory. So I would say, first of all, I would respect the choices women make. I think one of the things that women aren't great about is sometimes we're too hard on one another. We don't respect one another's choices. You know, the woman who's the stay-at-home mother can slightly turn up her nose at the woman who turns up in a rush to be the last person to collect the kid from school or from creche or whatever. Uh, The woman who's working can be slightly dismissive of somebody who takes the quotes easy, and I don't believe it is an easy option of taking time out. Um, We can be overly critical of one another, and, uh, and it's another quote 
um, from Madeleine Albright, which is that there's a special place in, 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 in heaven for women who support other women. And I don't know whether she added it or I did or somebody else did, but a special place in hell for women who don't. So respecting one another's choices is part of it. Um, yes, you're going to feel guilt. You'll actually feel guilt if you stay at home and give up work, as well as if you go back to work. You'll feel guilt, as I can sometimes do now, about your mother as much as about your child. If you're a woman who hasn't had kids, if you're a woman who wants to have kids, like my, my daughter, went to, who's, who's now expecting her first child, went through the thing that Church Sandberg talks about, should I lean back? Because I'm thinking of having a child, even though she was having difficulty becoming pregnant. And I was saying, cop yourself on. The time to lean back is when you're ready to make a choice, not when you're hoping you might become pregnant somewhere in the next three years. So, so I think there's... So women Don't talk the themselves out of options a lot they of the time. They do. Yeah. Um, you know, the guilt is part of the territory. Try not to sweat it too much because the one thing I've discovered is kids are extraordinarily resilient. And really at a certain point, a little bit has to be about minding yourself and your own sanity and the stress levels that go with it, which are very significant at times. What do you do for your own uh, stress relief? Do you um, run? Do you walk? I, I used to run and cycle. Um, my knees won't allow me to do that. Walking, cooking. Um, I. <laughs> you have a blog. I have you? a blog on Chinese food, which came from my, which is 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 very much a hobby. So it's not something I actually had to tell myself. I shouldn't feel guilty um, because I haven't written a blog post in a fortnight. This is not a job, Julia. Doing this for fun. What's the name of the blog? Um, shenanigans, because my daughter is. Shan, daughter-in-law Shan and my son is Shane and it actually became a way of capturing my feelings about my son managing, marrying a Chinese girl and me learning to know her culture and her food which I was fascinated by anyway and the absolute irony is that my little two-year-old grandson is absolutely fascinated with cooking you couldn't script it like where does this come from like it's it's really strong but for me um, I actually find to go home and prepare a Chinese meal and all the prepping of food and just the rhythm of that the losing myself in something else um, like that I, after I left the, the day job I took up learning Italian and I walk you know um, and I do find walking and just, just getting out getting near the sea clears the, the mind clears the mind talk to me about unconscious bias have you learnt much about unconscious bias have you come across it in the department well, the I've, I've come, I, 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 unconscious bias exists and, and there's lots of really interesting research about this and there's no point in asking people about their unconscious biases because by definition you're actually asking them about their conscious biases you have to see what happens in practice and, and for me probably the most telling example of it is the Haiti and I can't remember what they called the guy in the, the clip but they in one of the universities in the States, they produced the description of the way a person operates in their job. And they gave it uh, to mixed groups of people, male and female. And to half the group, uh, they exactly the same description of the person and the way they behaved, but they gave the name Haiti. And to the other, they gave what Henry or whatever. And everybody agreed both of them were very effective in their jobs. But they all decided they didn't like the woman because she came across as brash and arrogant and a bit tough and a bit stroppy. And they all decided they liked the man when it was described as a man because he came across as strong and strategic, right? So we women suffer a problem 
that behaviours that are seen as quite acceptable in men are not seen as so acceptable in women. And again, back to your phrase, you've got to roll with that. I've just learned to just live with that consequence and reality. By the same token, if you do various kind of tests and associated, associate words with feminine and masculine, all the soft stuff is seen as feminine and all the hard stuff is seen as masculine. So all the words we typically associate with leadership are men's words. All the words we associate with nurturing, caring, child-minding, homemaking are seen as women's words. Uh, and I mean, as to what you can do about it, if you can neutralise the recruitment process until as late as possible in the process. So for instance, when I'm shortlisting CVs, do I need to know to start with whether it's a man or a woman? Possibly not. What I need well, to I see is the skill set, you know, so that you kind of get, get you, 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 you take it out of the equation. And the other thing is there's some really interesting training that Google and others are doing now just about raising awareness around this and getting a bit of game playing and role playing so people tune in to what they unconsciously do. Are men getting the message? Are our boards getting the message? You know, are we moving away from the pale male grey and still to more diverse boards, more diverse workplaces, because the bottom line is telling us internationally from all the research that companies that are more diverse make more money at the end of the day. But is the message percolating to boardrooms? Honestly, I'm not convinced that it is. Um, I think there's a certain, how would I put this? There's a certain amount of tokenism. Now, I want to be careful about how I say this. There's a certain amount of pressure mounting on all male boards and on male chairs of boards in the private and the public sector to get more gender diversity in. There's a wariness and concern uh, that if they don't get ahead of this, that they'll find themselves having to do it as a result of gender quotas. Um, there is among um, the more enlightened investor community a growing insistence on diversity, both because it's seen as a good thing in its own right and because there is growing research that it impacts on the bottom line because most purchasing decisions are made by women, etc., etc. So uh, a gender balance is likely to improve the quality of decision making. You still hear a lot of, well, I'd love to have more women on board, but sure they aren't out there. So that's still very much around in the thought processes. You still get a lot of, well, we better get a couple of women on board, you know, a couple of broads in the boardroom or however it might be put, more or less politely than that. And then we've ticked that box and now we can say to our investors or to anybody else that challenges, we have a few women around. When they do that, interestingly enough, I genuinely believe that most, most boards, any board I've ever been involved in, and I don't see this as a reflection on me personally, will say to me that to their surprise, they've discovered that having more women around has really added value in ways they hadn't expected. So I think they begin to get the message in practice, but the reason for doing it may be more to do with keeping certain interests happy at the outset. Um, but there is still a pretty strong tendency when it comes to, you know, having filled a few slots to just think in terms of people you already know, whether you know that through the old boys network or however you know them. So they're recruiting people who are like them. Yeah, it's understandable, you know, so I think it'll happen. But it, 
you know, if we're to wait for it to happen in the natural order of things, it won't be my granddaughter or grandson about to arrive generation. It'll be another two generations beyond that. Do you think we can afford to wait that long? <laughs> I mean, look at the banks. I mean, you're on the TSB yeah, board. But if you look TSB, at yeah. the permanent TSB board, when you look at Bank of Ireland and AIB, the two pillar banks, they've only one woman yeah, on I, the board. I mean, I, and yet most of the clients, I mean, at least 50% must be their clients. Probably not, actually. And that in itself um, is interesting. I'm just diverting for a moment to an Australian example. The last leadership um, and gender diversity session I gave was actually to a group of senior managers in National Australia Bank, uh, led by uh, a young woman who's a good friend of my daughter's, who got to a senior position in the bank by virtue of reaching out and developing a new client base among women, because nobody had noticed that all these male clients of the Wealth Bank, and this is specifically Wealth Bank, had very often partners and spouses um, who were wealthy women in their own right, but nobody was actually reaching out to support them in their investment decisions. So I think there's a real untapped market for banks with a, a, a female um, clientele. And again, one anecdote, a friend of mine, when she got to be a very senior position, again a number of years ago, went into a bank thrilled with herself, having just been promoted to the equivalent of Secretary General, wanted to take out a car loan, um, to buy a little red sports car for herself and the guy behind the counter said what would you need a car like that for you know like you wouldn't say that to a man it just wouldn't happen so do I think we can afford to rate personally I don't which gets you into the thorny issue of gender quotas which intuitively I don't like and I suppose I'm in the lucky position I've got to where I am without gender quotas so therefore I can afford to um be more sanguine about them for others but I mean my own sense is that it will be the threat of gender quotas maybe with a long lead period before enforcing them and a sunset clause on them that might just up the ante and and move the agenda forward Um, and it isn't always easy but there are sometimes they say you know as you say they say that there aren't enough women out there do you think they're just not looking hard enough i i think it's it's a question of not knowing where to look and and i have fallen into that trap myself at times because i know in fact on both boards that i was appointed to the kind of thing that would have been said to me is you know we reached out to you because we didn't want to go for the quotes usual suspects and there are a small number of women um that end up almost being the go-to people for board appointments and that gets women into very unfair um um on a foster positions like my good friend mary davis who at one point was labeled quango queen because she had a handful of boards under her belt now women, others men say to me but you're on lots of boards you're probably on too many boards i say right this minute i'm on two if i talk to male colleagues of mine who came through a similar career path very often they're on six seven or eight i don't recommend that by the way i think four is about the maximum that i would handle and and, and do a really good uh, job with but i think there's a couple of things first of all there's broadening the net of women and and people like vivian job women like vivian job have done a fabulous job with their gender diversity net initiative another is that organizations may need to get brave by going a level down in organizations in other words part of the problem is the reason i can perform effectively as a non-executive director is i've already been effectively a ceo in organizations and obviously i've had lots of governance experience 
And it's one area where a bit of age and experience stands to you. But there's only so many women like me who've been lucky enough to make it to the very top. So being brave enough to go for a woman who, in, in board terms, might be second-level experience rather than C-suite experience can be, can be challenging. Are there any favourite quotes you have that have kind of inspired your life, and particularly in your career? I try to see where the roots of my gutsiness came from, and I'm utterly convinced it came from my dad. He was a very traditional Irish dad in one sense, um, but I was the eldest, his only daughter and the apple of his eye. And I remember when I was a kid, about nine or ten, and I was being bullied uh, quite viciously by uh, another girl up the road. And at the time, it was a Disney film, um, but there was a song that whenever you feel afraid, hold your head up high um, and whistle a happy tune and no one will suspect you're afraid. And that stuck with me all my life. Uh, and I use it now to talk about the issue um, of fake it until you feel it. And I'm not talking about not being authentic. I'm talking about sometimes you have to pretend to a self-confidence you don't feel to succeed. So that, that would have been probably the most influential thing um, said to me in my life. Uh, and the other bit, which is, I suppose, not unrelated, and it's, it's not even a quote, it's go for it. Like, just my my motto is go for it. Jump outside your comfort zone. Um, after that, I actually found Sheryl Sandberg's book resonated with me. I know some people say she puts the spotlight back on women rather than on systems and organisations. But while I think there's a lot that needs to change in the way in which we organise the world of work and society and the economy, I do think there's an element for women of accepting the reality of our gender, the reality of our biology, which just a fact of life. Uh, uh, And her one about women's careers being less of a ladder and more of a jungle gym, I really believe in. I mean, if I had known how exciting and how rewarding a post-civil service career would be, if I had kind of got the concept of an encore career uh, and that sense that I can now have a career, however you define it, that goes on into my 80s, I would have been far less scared um, uh, than I was the day I walked out of the civil service after 37 years. Did I hear you say, though, at the Women's Council event there about women on boards, that when you were left and you went to a recruiting agent first, they didn't know what to do with you? Is that true? Oh, I mean, I, I came out of the civil service with a vague notion that I wanted to do some combination of non-executive directorships and consultancy. Uh, and I did what I was advised to do, was to trot around to a few of uh, the recruitment agencies that specialised with boards in boards. And one very well-known person around town who would have been seen as one of the real experts in this area basically said to me, look, at, you're a civil servant, you don't have private sector experience, I don't see you really as being marketable to private sector boards. More or less, you know, if you ever get anything yourself, come back to me in a number of years' time. And I remember feeling terribly disheartened and it's the one thing I'd say about Ryanair the the invitation to me to join the Ryanair board is probably the most unexpected thing I got in my career because I would have like every other 
public servant, politician he ever come across with, had more than my fair share of spats with Michael O'Leary when I was Secretary General of the Department of Transport. So that phone call to say the chairman would like to invite you to join the Board of Ryanair was utterly a bolt from the blue for me. But that particular invitation, that willingness by an entrepreneur to take a risk on somebody very different because they'd bring something very different to the table um, was, has been hugely influential in my post-public service career and just goes to show that courageous entrepreneurs who say, ah, should I do something a bit different? What can possibly go wrong? I'll take a chance and can sometimes pay off. Finally, what would your three pieces of advice be to people who want to pursue a career, either in the civil service or in the public service? The first thing I'd say is be true to yourself. Um, uh, while I've got that fake it until you feel it kind of thing, be true to yourself and who you are, whatever that is. Don't feel you have to play some sort of corporate game and line up with what, what you think is expected of you. The second thing I would say is that what always worked for me is creating a vision of what I wanted out of life. And when I say a vision, I'm not talking about the amount on a paycheck. I'm not even talking about the specific job, but developing a sense of what would make me happy. What would the ingredients of a happy life look like? And when I left the civil service, I took a blank page and on that blank page, I wrote about 10 things about where I'd like to be in three years time. And then I promptly put it away and forgot about it. But I took it out recently and said, yep, I've done them. So visioning a future for yourself um, uh, is the second thing. And the third thing I would say is grab opportunities that come your way with both hands. Even if you don't quite feel you're up to it, a point I constantly make is that I do quite a lot of recruitment interviewing um, at senior levels, and I'm constantly surprised by men who come before me who I'd say, why did they think they were ready for that job? They haven't quite got there yet, but fair juice them. They believe they can make up for it on the job. And I'm constantly coming across women who come before me who apologise for the few boxes they don't tick and underplay the experience they have. Um, I'd say they'd be the they'd be the main things. Julia, you're an inspiration. <laughs> Thank you. Can I just one last thing? Is personal branding important? Yeah, you are your own brand, I I, I think is is actually important. And one of the things I discovered, like most women do the hard way, is that if you once you reach any kind of a senior level, that you become a brand in its own right and that people see you and study you and watch you and that you can never be fully 100% off duty and unfortunately it's a reality for women the way you dress the way you appear the way you slouch if you look tired if you're cranky all those things get noticed so I don't do branding in a kind of a I, I don't do it in a let's go to a PR agency and tell me how I should present myself but I do think about how I come across and I try to be again it's about being consistent and true and I and I do say to people it's around very simple things women occasionally without realizing it letting themselves let themselves down by oh, silly things like arriving for an interview with a very plunging neckline not realizing that at a certain age one of the first things that's going to happen is you're going to flush up like no man's business with you know coming along with lots of glittery jewellery for something that's you know very polished up and that might sound trite but unfortunately 
the the pale male and stale grey men don't run that risk women do so we do have to think about how we come across in the round not just about who we are inside that was the very wise and wonderful julie o'neill of join the dots if you want to email us at the podcast with ideas comments and suggestions please do so to info at womeninleadership.ie. Till next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all the team at the Women in Leadership podcast, goodbye and keep supporting the women.